Great, lovely to be uh, with you here this afternoon. I have to keep reminding myself of saying this afternoon. Um, do you find that? If you've been to church for a little while, you get used to saying morning and evening. Day. But it's lovely to be with you. And uh, do have your Bibles open, um, if you will please, at that passage uh, of Scripture. Um, I'd like us to consider um, this passage under the, the question, or the title rather, of a question of authority. A question of authority. I can see it's on the screen there, that's, that's really helpful. Authority is an interesting subject, isn't it, these days? I think probably, for lots of us, the subject of authority is, is something which we are suspicious of. It's something, isn't it, in our world, in our context even today, that we are wary of. Whether it's we hear the story of an overbearing teacher or parent or national leaders who enforce their authoritarian regimes, authority. And perhaps we are taught these days to question authority rather than accept it. Well, maybe because of that, on this first read of this uh, passage, we might find that uh, tricky. But in Mark's Gospel, The question of Jesus' authority, who he is, has come up time and time again. Back in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, we read this in verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not the teachers of the law. Jesus was different, clearly from everyone else around at the time. He's proven, and hopefully if you've been coming here over the the past few weeks as you've looked at Mark's Gospel, he's proven that he has authority to do so much, to forgive sins, to control sickness, nature, even death itself. Jesus has authority. And now the question about who Jesus is and where he gets his authority from has become very important to these people called the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders. Up, up till now, in the, in the first ten chapters of Mark, Jesus has been wandering the countryside, preaching, teaching, healing, doing his ministry. He's not been a direct threat to these men. But now he is. And so they start to question his authority. I'd like us uh, this afternoon to um, to pick on four questions to help us unpack. Um, I say that so you know how far I've got um, before the end. And the first question is, well, it comes up, doesn't it? The, the, the leaders, the chief priests, ask Jesus in verse uh, 28. We might say it in this way. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Now, it's personal. Um, Mark shows us uh, that very much uh, as he sets the scene. Jesus, in the previous verses, has been um, clearing the temple. Verse 27, Jesus is walking in the temple courts. And for the Jew, that's very significant. I've never done this, but if you've ever walked in the House of Parliament, or if you're American, if you've ever walked 
in the White House, I'm sure you would feel that sense of authority as you walk around that place. This is the place you feel where it all happens, or it should all happen, shouldn't it? Um, this is where the big decisions are made. Jesus is there in the Jewish nation as he walks through the temple courts. And, and humanly speaking, all of that power was exercised at that time by the teachers um, of the law, the elders who are asking him this question. There were 71 men altogether who formed what was called the Sanhedrin, and together they were the ultimate power and authority amongst the Jews at that time. Jesus then is standing in, if you like, the spiritual seat of authority in Israel, and he's being confronted by these ruling religious leaders. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? Now, you can ask questions for different reasons, can't you? Questions are usually pretty good. Um, I'm a teacher, and we encourage children to ask questions, maybe not all the time, because you never get to teach what you need to teach, but yeah, questions are good. And it shows engagement. I'm not suggesting you ask me questions this afternoon. Perhaps at the end, that would be really helpful. Um, this question is not asked because they want to know the answer. We know that, don't we? They're trying to trick Jesus. In fact, back in verse 18, we read, And they began looking for a way to kill him. They feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. He's threatening them. And so they're seeking to trip him up. He's a threat, not just to their authority, but to their whole way of life. He is a threat. And then Jesus comes out with his question in reply. Now this is not Jesus' way of getting around a difficult question. He's not trying to evade something he finds difficult to answer. He's not trying to be unhelpful. In fact, you see what he promises. He promises to ask that, that answer their question if they would just answer one of his. And his question, well, we could phrase it like this. Secondly, who do you think John the Baptist was? Now, we might not expect Jesus to ask that question in response, but it is brilliant. I don't know whether you've read much of the New Testament. There's a few times when Jesus does this, doesn't he? Somebody comes with him, comes to him with a difficult situation, with a question, and he deals with it in such a wise and a clever way. I just stand in awe at the way he does it. It is a brilliant way to answer his accusers. Every Jew is listening in the temple would have known what Jesus was asking when he said, what do you think about John the Baptist? He was basically saying this. The prophetic ministry of John the Baptist, he was calling the nation to repent, to be baptised, before someone greater appeared. Did that have its origins with God or with man? In other words, was he sent from God? Or did John just make it up? 
What's your answer? Now, they struggled. Everyone they knew believed John the Baptist was from God. So what were they going to answer? Because if John the Baptist was a prophet, which is what everyone believed, his whole message was one of preparation to someone else. What were they going to do? John the Baptist even said to me in John 3, pointing to Jesus, here's, he's the Messiah, the one I've come to prepare the way for. John, his ministry was to repent, be baptised, and follow Jesus. He is the true Messiah. The question for the Sanhedrin was, why don't you believe John? And why don't you see Jesus for who John said he was? It's a brilliant question, isn't it? To put it back upon them. But another way in which Jesus turns the table is, is this. Do you, do you remember back in verse 27? Jesus looked like he was he was probably in trouble. He was standing in the seat of the place of authority and he was being ambushed by his potentially 71 men from the Sanhedrin asking him this tricky question. But now where do we end up in verse 32? If you've got your Bible, you'll see it there. The Sanhedrin fall into their own trap. They were hoping that Jesus couldn't answer their question. And look, they can't answer his, can they? Uh, well, they, they do kind of, but it's a real, a really feeble answer, isn't it? They say, we don't know. Hang on a minute. You're the religious leaders. And you're saying, we don't know. And Jesus' response is wonderful, isn't it? Neither will I tell you. In other words, you do know, but you don't want to tell me. So neither am I going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. But of course it's absolutely clear by what authority Jesus was doing these things. Because he is from God. And then we move into chapter 12, which is all part of the same conversation. If you look at the beginning, then Jesus began to teach them in parables. The same people, the same crowd, he's now teaching them something of himself, yes, but also something of them, their history, and how they've treated God in the past, and Jesus right now. And really Jesus is asking this question, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are before God? That's what he's asking them. And so he starts to tell them this parable. Now, it's not something perhaps we're familiar with. I don't know whether you have uh, any or many farmers in the congregation here. Probably a few budding gardeners. Yeah, has anybody tried to grow a vine? Oh, well done. Successful? Oh, right. Maybe I'll talk to you after this. My father-in-law tried to grow a vine down in, in Cornwall with some success. Some success. Um, it's not easy, I don't think. It's not easy. But of course, here, in this climate, not unknown at all. But also, here at this time, they had this, this system of um, 
what you might call landlords, or actually in this case, and in many cases, absentee landlords, we might call them, where they let the land out to farmers who would tend, look after the crop, and then the landlord would come back to get the profits. And most cases, I imagine, the landlord was not interested in what happened day in, day out. If you've ever rented a property off somebody, you know what that's like. They're not really sorry. They're not really interested day in, day out of what happens, are they? What they're interested in is the profit at the end of the contract. And that's what most of them were like, I suppose. But look, this landlord is different. Look, verse 1. He's the one who planted the vines. He's the one who built the wall around to protect the crop. He's the one who built the wine press. This is all the landlord. He's the one who built the watchtower. He has done all of that. And he hands it over to the farmer to tend and look after. He moves away, not because he's not interested, but he moves away until the time when the vine is ripe and it's time for harvest. When that time comes, verse 2, he sends his servant, quite naturally, to come and get the rent. And as one commentator put it, the tenants pay their rent in blows. They mistreated his servant. Verse 3, they seized him, beat him, sent him away, empty-handed. I don't know what the people at that time, as they listened to Jesus, expected to happen next. I wonder whether this was a surprise. This was unexpected. In verse 4, he sends another servant. You'd expect him perhaps to go and deal with them straight away. He sends another servant. What do they do? Strike him on the head. Treat him shamefully. Perhaps that's where you should draw the line. But no. This landlord sends another and another and another servant, giving them time, the opportunity to pay what they should. And they don't. They even kill some of the servants he sends. So imagine what they thought when Jesus brings the next twist in this parable. The landlord says, surely they will respect my son. And he sends his son. Not only his son, but his beloved son. Did you notice that in the passage? Surely they will respect him. What did they think? Well, this is it. This is the end game for them. This is amazing. This is just what they were thinking. Hoping might happen, perhaps. This means that if they kill the son, they get to be the owners. They can inherit the land. This is the heir, they say. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. That's what they were looking for all along. And so in verse 8, the unthinkable happens. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What a dreadful story. Remember, this is just about a vine, a few grapes, 
What a dreadful, horrific story. But of course, Jesus is telling them this parable to show them who they are, how they've treated God, and who he is, and his authority as he stands before them. Jesus is drawing all sorts of historical references and meanings in this parable as he shares it with them. And in fact, we read, don't we, at the end of the parable, they knew exactly what he was saying, that he was talking to them. How did they know? Maybe some of you here know your Bibles really well, and you know exactly how they knew that he was talking to them. They knew their Bibles really well too, and that's why they knew he was talking to them. If you've got a Bible with you, turn turn back to um, Isaiah, and um, in the opening uh, verses of Isaiah chapter 5, uh, we read this. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. Does it sound familiar? He dug it up and cleared it with stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. If you were a Jew, when Jesus was telling that parable, all these things, these bells would be ringing in your mind. Who is the vine that Isaiah was talking about? Read down a few more verses in verse 7 of Isaiah 5. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. Jesus was talking about them. He was talking about the way that they had treated God. They were the vines. He was talking to them about the numerous times that God had sent his prophets to the people, calling them back to follow him, calling them back to repentance. In Jeremiah 7, verse 25, sorry I didn't give you these verses, but if you've got a Bible, one moment to turn to Jeremiah 7, and verse 25, from the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I, this is God speaking, sent you my servants the prophets. But you did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. And if you trace the history of the, the Jews in the Old Testament, you'll find that they did exactly what happened to the servants in this parable. Killing, mistreating, ignoring, throwing out God's prophets. And as they applied this to their own situation, I'm sure they quickly realised that Jesus was speaking directly to them. The vineyard is his road. The owner is God. The servants are the prophets I sent, and the son, spoken of here, is Jesus, the one who was standing before them. Which means Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew exactly what they were plotting. 
to kill him. The death of the son in this story, um, at the end, Jesus tells them is not the end. Verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard, know this word, to others. Now, this is totally understandable in the context of the story, isn't it? In the context of the parable. That's exactly what he will do. He will come and justice will be shown and those unfaithful tenants will be thrown out. They will be killed and the farm will be given to someone else. Totally proportionate to what had happened. But when they started applying them to themselves, these Jewish leaders, and when we start seeing the significance of what Jesus is saying here, something much bigger was going on. God's people have been led by leaders who disobeyed God, hadn't listened to him for hundreds of years, and now those same leaders who had listened to God were plotting to kill God's son. And because of that, God was going to entrust his people to others. Others. Others who were not Jews. Others who were actually ceremonially unclean Gentiles. Others like you, like me. This is a huge shift in their thinking. A huge shift in what God was saying to his people. He'd been building up to this, uh, up to this point for uh, a while, and Jesus explains to them what will happen next in this parable? That the care of God's people is going to be taken away from the Jewish leaders who haven't listened and given and entrusted to those of every tribe, every tongue, every nation who submit to the authority of Jesus. But what about the Son? What about Jesus himself. What was the purpose for him to allow himself to be killed? Which brings us to our last question. Do you know who Jesus is? Jesus quotes here to me from uh, Psalm 118. And he says, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord, the Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. In case the Jews thought this, this was a surprise, that this was sudden, Jesus takes them back to the sons to show that everything promised about Jesus is going to happen. 
And in Psalm 118 that he quotes, he takes us back to the building site. I don't know whether any of you have any building work done. Uh, I think one of the most stressful times that we went through as a couple. All happens at the last minute, suddenly, in the last three weeks, everybody's in your house. Electrician, plasterer, chippy. Uh, my big advice to you is hide the hoover. Okay, don't let them use your hoover. Big mistake. But when you're doing a, a building, a building site, the materials are piling in, and there's bricks and tiles and all sorts of things, and things get dropped, things get broken on delivery, and they're tossed aside. In fact, um, most uh, building projects have 10% uh, of the project put aside for broken materials. So, um, just in case of how much they expect to get broken, I guess. This is the, the picture that Jesus is pointing to here. The builders, they rejected this piece of the building. But isn't it marvellous? Isn't it wonderful that in God's beautiful, sovereign plan, the stone, Jesus, who was rejected by the Jewish leaders, has been taken and used, and not only used, but he is the central part of God's church. Um, cornerstone, you could uh, take that to, um, I think, translate it in a couple of ways. It could be translated to be that, that the first corner stone uh, sets down as the foundation of any building at the time. Important because it's solid, but also you set the whole building from that stone. So might translate it to be the, uh, the, the central stone that you might put in an archway, and of course if that is not there, the whole archway and building falls down. Whatever the, the, the translation there, it shows us that Jesus is the most important. That's what he's saying to his people. And we can see that, don't we? Now, more than 2,000 years later, Jesus, who died and rose again triumphantly three days later, is the great hope for us, his people. So what do we take from what Jesus was showing to the Jewish leaders at this time, what do we take? How can we encourage our own hearts this afternoon from this passage? Well, let me just share with you eight very quick things that we might take to encourage our hearts, if we're Christians, uh, this afternoon from this passage. First of all, it shows us, doesn't it, that God is sovereignly in charge of all things. That what he plans in eternity will come to fruition. It means that God always keeps his word. Has there been a time when you've doubted that? Because of what you've gone through. God keeps his word and his promises to his people. It reminds us that God is patient. Time and time and time again, God sent people, his prophets, to call the nation back to him. He does that with us, doesn't he? Time and time again, he gives us opportunity to repent and come back to him. It reminds us that God's time 
isn't our time, that he has all things according with his purposes that he has set out. It reminds us that God works in surprising ways, amazing ways, taking the weak, taking the weak things of this world to confound the mighty in this world. It reassures us that God's love is for his people. It reminds us that God deals personally with disobedience. There will be a time when Jesus returns to judge this world, which means me and you, and to judge what we have done with the authority of Jesus. And it tells us afresh that beautiful story that God's Son himself was the one who, though rejected by men, came into this world to become the saviour of this world, the one in whom we can trust. So, Christian this afternoon, if you, if that is you, which of those wonderful truths can you take away as a comfort to refresh your soul this afternoon? If you're not, if you would not describe yourself as a Christian here this afternoon, can I urge you, as you reflect on what we've looked at this afternoon, as we reflect on God's mercy in sending his son, do not ignore, turn away from God coming to speak to you. Do not ignore Jesus showing himself to be your saviour. Yes, God is a God of mercy, a God who patiently shows us time and time again, who patiently gives us that opportunity to repent, to trust in him, to submit to his authority, to accept him as our saviour, but that time will run out. This passage shows us that Jesus is the cornerstone, the one in whom we can build our trust for our lives, but more importantly for the church, as he builds his church upon Christ, our Saviour.